Welcome to Crossing Darkness, a podcast about tabletop role-playing games with a focus on the world of darkness. We broadcast over Twitch every Sunday at 7 p.m. Central Time and are open to answering questions from chat during the show. I'm your host, Frozen Fallout. My co-host is Motor Rory, who helped me create this podcast as well as a 40-person, four-table Gen Con event. Hey, Josh. And hi, everyone. This is Season 3, Episode 9. Uh, today we have special guest Charles Ash, storyteller for Blood Coven, a Vampire the Masquerade game, and writer of A Ghoul's Tale, available on the Storyteller's Vault. Uh, Charles, how have these uh, dark, cold nights been treating you? Well, they're dark and they're cold, and if you're a World of Darkness fan, that's probably optimal, so can't complain, really. <laughs> yeah, definitely... Uh... Definitely a great type of weather and time for vampires. I have to say that uh, I, I live in Wisconsin, um, so winter is like, I don't know, if we get like, what, 12 hours of daylight maybe? I think it's less now. It's yeah. less at in, some point. In Phoenix, it's more like if you get an hour of daylight in the summer, you're already a pile of ass. If you're just a, just a lily mortal. Like last week when we had the storms, or if you had the storms, Facebooking, wow, it's raining, it's dark, it's cold, I love it. And then the sun came, it was all blue, and I'm like, oh, this is so depressing. Yeah, so, uh, so Charles, tell us a little bit about uh, some of the stuff that you've been doing. It looks like you, you do some stuff for uh, storytelling for Blood Coven. Uh, Coven, can you tell us a little bit about that? That's actually, I started that game back in August of 1994, and it's been through several rotations of several tables of players since then. But that's the situation where I just uh, never stopped telling the story and never stopped writing it down. So I just compounded it over and over and over again. So it's, it's something I started when I'm 19 and something I'm still doing at 47. And it's it tries to be a dark and atmospheric game. It tries to be something complex but uh, accessible to even a casual player. So is this like a continuation that, uh, like, uh, is it a, a, like, massive campaign that you've been running? Or is it something that uh, you've been doing, like, rewrites on? Um well, most of it, uh, most of it's my work. It's a long-going chronicle. It's all one chronicle. It's I crossed over a few games here and there, but it's almost ninety. That was what. And so, I'm sorry, you cut out there a little bit. You uh, you said that uh, mainly vampire. Yeah, it's mainly vampire. I'd say it's like ninety-five percent vampire total. And you know, like, I occasionally go over here and do a mage storyline. I might go over here and do a werewolf storyline, but I'm. 95 percent to vampire the masquerade all the way through awesome yeah so so you mainly you've got this uh, so how many years has that been running then 27 years we have a timeline that as of this week is 97 pages long wow <laughs> um what's what's the uh start date for that uh august of 1994 i don't think I exact day but mm-hmm Oh, that's awesome. So, and then is it, it it's present day for the Chronicle? Um, it's all the way caught up to 2000? Or 2021? Uh, like, sort of. We do modern day stuff. I think my co-storyteller, I brought him on a couple of years ago uh, to start adding stuff on his own when I was time hiatus. Uh, it's mainly just, uh, we hop around through time and space. You know, we do France, 1492 over here. We do 1100s with the formation of Premier over here. And we just jump back and forth on but it creates one coherent chronological. 
Interesting. Cool. So you kind of have like a, a campaign that you'll be running something in the 90s and then, you know, you'll jump back and say, let's do something in the past and kind of flush out more of what happened in your world in this specific time period, in this specific event or, or um, place. Pretty much. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'll look at the storyteller and the other players and say, OK, well, we just did 1990s werewolf. Let's head back and do 1600s vampire and see what's happening in New Orleans. And a lot of that stuff, you know, we'll have stuff that crosses over an item or an NPC or a through line that shows it's connected to everything else. It's just a cameo, but it ties Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. That is really impressive, I have to say. Um, I've not heard of somebody being able to have one chronicle that they've been building since, like, the beginning, and that's that's pretty epic. It's really just me being a stubborn shit, to be honest with you. And I just... <laughs> kept using the same notes and kept adding to notes. It was as simple as don't stop playing, write everything down, red slather. But I owe it all to the players too, the competent players who really invest themselves into it and put pieces of themselves into the story because it's as much their creation as it is mine. Are some of your players people that have been around since all the way from the beginning or has it been swapping people out a lot? Uh, I have people, my current group have had around mostly for about eight or nine. Uh, the original groups of all, you know, graduated college, went off, got married, moved across the country. You know, I touch base them from time to time, but they don't really have the the energy or the time commitment to a chronicle at this point. I might write a one shot for them, I guess. I'm scattered to the forward. But they're still aware of the timeline, they're still aware of the Cool. Uh, have you recorded any of this, or is there any kind of online presence of, of the, the chronicle? Well, you know, uh, I talked to my co-storyteller just last night because we played. Uh, I played in his game last night, and I said, "You know, it'd be great if we could podcast this ourselves. It'd be great if we could re record this ourselves. It'd be great stuff that we." And he just kind of rolled his eyes and smiled at me and said, "I don't know about that." So I'm kind of working on hopefully getting something like that started in the future. I had the double storyteller. You, I was going. Yeah. yeah, but unfortunately, uh, it's only recorded on the timeline now. So. Yeah, I've, I think I've had this conversation with Josh a bunch of times, where you know I've I've got my regular gaming group that we've been together for almost 20 years now since, uh, since we started college. And every time somebody brings up, you know, recording and broadcasting, everybody's like, no, nah, that's just, that's not who we are. Uh, and it wasn't until I met Josh here and we started our, our Technogate show that it's like, we've actually got something online. But yeah, a lot of groups aren't just aren't comfortable with it, and and honestly, I'm I'm very sympathetic to that because once you start broadcasting, it 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 changes the the nature of the game. I believe it. I mean, I'm an advocate that uh, any game you ever run, write it down somehow and keep it. So, like in 20 years, you can show your friends and say, "Hey, do you remember this?" You know, having that souvenir for the game for everybody's participation, I think highly enough of that. I would love to get into the recording thing, but it really depends how it goes. And I'm yeah, I would say that one of the big things is if you're, um, you don't need to broadcast or to, you know, put it on Twitch or, um, you know, even store it anywhere that's publicly available. But uh, recording in this day and age has gotten so much easier, especially with if you're, you know, especially if you're playing over the internet um, with people and you have Absolutely. Discord or something. That's make, you know, recording becomes so much easier, at least on the voice level. Um, you know, but even if you're at home, um, you know, and you've got a table, you get one of these, you know, podcasting mics that, you know, kind of allows you to pick up the whole room. 
put that in the center of the table and you pretty much have, you know, the same kind of um, quality to a certain degree. Um, and you can, you know, I, I'm really fascinated with the idea of being able to preserve all of my chronicles moving forward, at least in a recording kind of format, because it, um, it'll allow me to go back and check out games and relive and re understand what's going on in my games a lot better than just taking notes. Absolutely. I mean, I spent some time in theater before I really started to focus on writing. So I got this slight performance bug. I do voices, I do inflections, characters. So I would love to have those records going forward. Like, here's what I did for my group. This is how far I went as a storyteller trying to. And then some of them do some great performances themselves for certain moments of RP, some really outstanding. Think, well, I can put that in print, but nobody's going to ever know how well it really played out as a scene. Didn't record it. Hopefully one day I'll win that battle, but for now I'm just kind of on the back seat. Yeah, I would say that the the first step, if you if you can't get them to want to broadcast and stuff, is at least get them to the idea of, hey, is, do you mind if I at least record this, I you know, so that I have yeah. a, a, a keepsake of it, uh, like you said. And yeah, it's definitely really, um, really interesting that how easy it's become. Because I remember when I was um, first storytelling in my teenage years back in, you know, the early 2000s. Um, we were trying to figure out a way to record and we were getting like a tape recorder and, you know, kind of, uh, one of those old, you know, had like a tape and stuff you had to put inside of it with actual tape that you could rip out. Magnetic tape. tape. <laughs> and, uh, it was horrible. It was horrible to listen to. Now my phone, I can just put that onto a table and that record just, just as, you know, just fine. Um, you know, you definitely want better if you're trying to get it you know, if you want to publish it and stuff like that, but uh, your phone just for keeping, you know, recordings of what's going on in your games can be easily done if you're doing it in person. And of course, the internet is, you know, when you're online, it's super easy just to get any kind yeah, of recording yeah. OBS software. When I first started this uh, storytelling back in 93, all we had was IRC and the internet as we knew it today didn't exist at all. It was there, but it was definitely not this. And, you know, the strides that they've made to make this the people's voice, make the internet something that everybody can sound off on. It's not something people should pass up if they take advantage of it. Record your good times for the world, by God, do it. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So uh, some of the, what are some of the other projects that you work on? Do you do anything with uh, like conventions or anything? Uh, I have a table with my friend uh, Aurora O'Brien who did the uh, cover for Lady Dust, by the way, a ghoul's tale. Oh, sir. We share a table over at uh, Phoenix Comic Con, also known as Phoenix Fan Fusion. Phoenix Fan Fusion. Great. Say that six And we do that uh, every year, except for obviously the COVID winter that we're And we do cooperations between ourselves from time to time. I'll write something, I do the artwork for it. We do a little collaboration. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so, uh, but you don't run like an, uh, an actual event. Um, you just have like a booth there or. Yeah, we're, we're kind of part of the event. We're in the Merchant's Row. You know, we're off there off to the side peddling our wares and hoping for the best. But, you know, running events, running organizations, I haven't done that. But... Yeah, it's just, uh, I always uh, find it interesting, like, because we go to a lot of conventions um, and I just don't see a lot of presence of the World of Darkness at, uh, at like, Gen Con. Um, 
for tabletop role-playing games. I see a lot, there's a lot of like one-shot LARPs and, and stuff like that, but there's a very low amount of, of GMs running stuff for, for Gen Con. Um, and I always, I always wonder, you know, um, what other people, what other conventions are out there that people are doing, so. Yeah, it used to be, you know, they used to have gaming conventions. There weren't any other kind of conventions but gaming, at least locally we did that. And I was recruited into Vampire the very first time at a had a big world of darkness that they were doing there. I was lured in by a kindly player. I've been doing it ever since, though. They should have a, hopefully some kind of presence at most, but now it's all just, it's the Comic-Con experience. The gaming experience is one little channel off to the side compared to all the other. Yeah. Yeah, the gaming comes secondary a lot of the times at conventions these days to the actual uh, other events that are taking place. Like the last few fan fusions I was at, you know, last three or four, I, I didn't even know if they had gaming at all. I didn't hear about it from anybody. So I really didn't know if it's there. Interesting. Yeah, there's a big difference between the comic slash fan conventions versus like a legit gaming convention. Really it's, uh, it's very different. And the best thing about the gaming conventions the old days is you just went out and found a game day or night. And rather than trying to find a little pocket that they put you into for these larger you know, geez, there's this little game room in one of the hotels and the acres and acres and acres that they're holding Comic-Con. Well, I guess that'll be. Yeah, I don't see people in the, the comic and fandom uh, industry uh, really getting into gaming as much. But yeah, uh, not like I mean, with, with with the rise of Critical Role and uh, some of the other big, big channels, I do see that happening a little bit more. Uh, are there any uh, actual plays that you follow online? I have followed Critical Role before. My friend Alex, he goes to a number of them these days. I think she's in Vancouver at Jason now. She goes by the name of Redhead Vixen. He's great to watch. Yeah, I think I, think I saw that uh, linked on your Facebook, and I was wondering, oh, is he in this show? Uh, but uh, you just know one of the so. cast members? I know one of the cast members. I would love to do a show like that for Vampire of the World of Darkness, which is why I started my YouTube channel, but you know, it got derailed, and I'm still looking at possibly doing that. You know, I would love to be able to put, like, an entire Chronicle online. My bucket list ended. Yeah. Have you ever thought of uh, uh, typing something up for the, the Storyteller's Vault, like a like a source book for your, uh, like, a, even just a part of your Chronicle? You know, I, I thought about that, and the players have urged me to do that. And even before the Storyteller's Vault became a thing, they said, Chris, write this stuff down, turn it into books. And I'm like, that's probably not a good idea. We don't have the rights for that. We don't want to, you know, publish anybody's game. I mean, sure, we could do it by the Storyteller's Vault, but it becomes reading somebody else's game, which can be either really exciting or crashing board, depending on what you're... Have you ever thought about so doing, like, modules um, based on your campaign, like, setting? Um, because I think that that's one of the things that uh, I would like to see more of in the Storyteller's Vault is more... Um, you know, especially for Mage the Ascension, um, but also for Vampire the Masquerade and other games as well, uh, having like a, a module that's based in somebody's, you know, campaign setting. And then you could sell the, you know, the campaign setting uh, book for it um, on Storyteller's Vault. But you'd also have, you know, one shot modules or multiple, um, you know, a set of modules that you could sell as well. That's not a bad idea. I mean, I should talk that over with my group because... Um... They own the characters, basically. They participate in my... I can't... I'd feel without their permission. I'm sure they give it. 
but I wouldn't want to do it alone. Like, hey, guys, what do you think of this? How do we structure this? Where do you want this to come? So it wouldn't be a solo effort. I do like the idea. Yeah, definitely. Definitely something that you'd want uh, to get to get your whole whole group involved in if you did, for sure. Absolutely. Or at least the ones who are still participating. Uh, have you guys been actually playing during pandemic? Uh, it's been off and on. Like it depends on where the numbers are. If we're comfortable with the numbers, we'll put on our masks. We'll go and do our game. Keep social distance. Like the one our session last week was outside among a fire pit, and then this week it was inside, but we were all masked and you know doing the right thing. I guess it's been yeah. very nerve wracking because you can't really focus on the game because you're also wondering how close you need to get to everybody, I and mean, that's always in the back of your mind. well. But it's also it's also everybody's going mad. We're all going stir crazy, crouched in our rooms for a year. You got to get out and do something somehow. Put on your mask, wash your hands, and hope for the best. Yeah, is the play style of your group uh, not conducive to online play, or is that not something you guys uh, have looked into? It depends on what the audience looking for the online play would be looking for, because we don't really do an action-heavy chronicle. In fact, I've done. Oh, I, I think I just meant. No action. I just meant rather than gathering in person, like doing it over, uh, oh, oh, like Discord like or something. Right. You know, is... I'd have to poll them about that because I know my co-storyteller doesn't like the idea. He likes having everyone with him so he can socially interact with him face to face. Yeah, but I yeah, can it's... see what it's de it's definitely harder to game with people just hearing their voices, or even if you've got video, uh, doing it online. It's a different experience for sure. Yeah, yeah, it, it does change. I mean, if I did, I'd prefer to do it with cameras. If possible, I would record it without, if need be. But I have to check with them and really see what with it. I would love to do it though. Yeah, definitely. Well, what can you tell us about uh, some of the like epic things or some of the stuff that's been going on in your chronicles? Like, what do you, do you focus on? Like the Camarilla mostly, or are you do like a uh, jumping around on all different types of of stuff and try and hit up all the um, different aspects of Empire? Well, when we first started for the first couple of years, it was just uh, basic Camarilla Chronicle. It was, you know, second edition days. We didn't have that much info about the Sabbat, so it was my fault. About 1996, I decided I wanted to follow a group of Toreador through the ages. So we started a Chronicle in 1492 following a bloodline of Toreador, and eventually their descendants as well. So a good chunk of the uh, the timeline became this one bloodline of Toreador going between facts and largely being independent. We have like a family tree of all the players who've uh, been embraced into that Toreador bloodline. Now we're branching out to other clans and to give them the same depth. So it's kind of slowly been. I can't say it's like Camarilla or Sabat specific. It's whatever that table at the time happens to be. Yeah, so you kind of changed it up from from time to time um, based upon. So it sounds like you have like shorter um, like uh, runs that you kind of do. So how many? Uh, game sessions would you normally do with the same time and the same you know characters i can say i'm definitely a fan of shorter arcs these days because you just try to go on and on and on and on eventually it's going to fall apart just from sheer entropy mm -hmm. i like doing chronicles that are like maybe five to ten sessions tops and then we can change gears and do something else and come back to those characters point so i'm definitely a fan of having a definitive story arc that has a beginning middle and end and then runs only for say five to ten arcs or five to ten uh, episodes and you're good wow interesting that's a very uh i like that idea and actually that would be something that i think would be really conducive to 
um, to being uh, a show or something like that because there I, I feel like there are a lot of actual plays that are out there right now where it's like okay if you if you didn't check in with us at season one you know at the very beginning of this we're on season 25 right now you're you 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 should go back and you have to check out everything in order to really understand what's going on right now because we have this huge arc that's going on um but it would right. be really interesting exactly. to have like something where it would be a lot of you know little things it teaches you about the your world of course but uh i feel like you'd be able to drop in and kind of be able to see one little arc of you know 10 episodes or eight episodes that'd be really easy to kind of watch and or listen to i would love to do that actually because it would compress everything into a time frame that people can find manageable and still tell uh, an ongoing story over a long term that really fits together like lego bricks absolutely would... yeah It would be really hard, though. There's there's a lot of actual plays out there right now. Yeah, there are just right now. so many. Yeah, which only makes me want to do it more because everybody else is doing it. Yeah, that yeah. Sometimes it's not about uh, you know being you know oh I'm the only one that wants to do this and I I need all the the attention for doing it. It's like this is just kind of cool. It's <laughs> right. I just to do, do something that. fun that's modern. Yeah. Put your game out there. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, so you you have like a lot of focus in the beginning on the Toreador. Um, what do you what did you do with the um, like other worlds um, as you started? As I'm guessing you started adding them in later. Um, did you have like an idea of that there were werewolves and vampires and mages all together in the beginning, or is it your world? You know, started off very vampire centric, and you've slowly added those in. And if so, you know, how did you add those in? Well, I should preface this by saying by, you know, retrospectively, 19-year-old, I thought they all went together and they were all supposed to go together. And by the time I started this game, you know, Werewolf just went into second edition. The second edition book for Werewolf is one of my favorite books, White Wolf, by the way. But these things were out there and I thought they had to be merged together. And this is what people were expecting. It was the MCU shared universe for the MCU. And as an adult now, as somebody who's farther along, I would never have done that. I would have kept it strictly vampire. I would have had a completely different approach to mages and lupines. But there it is, you know, and I put it in the timeline, I hammered it down with these players playing these characters, and I didn't want to short sell them, so I just kind of brought it in and said, well, they aren't a focus, but if I have a backdoor to bring them in and have a cameo or have a meaningful brief arc, that's okay. But I try to keep it strictly vampire for the most part these days. A crossover can go wrong any number of thousand ways, maybe two or three ways it can go right, so it has to be carefully managed in my opinion. Mm -hmm. yeah definitely do you do you have like a a list of all of your like primary characters your movers and shakers inside of your world and does that include like a, a lot of the other world of darkness characters you know i've been meaning to put something together like that for years and it keeps intimidating me enough to just sit down and sit on my hands one of these days i'll get around to that you know some kind of grand index we had uh, one player create a a family tree of all the connected toreador and that's the closest we've come to having like an actual bibliography of who's who and where's where. Yeah, I really like the idea of building family trees. Um, I've I've done that for the Malkavians. Um, I had a Malkavian character that I was playing that I uh, went back and was like, okay, I'm going to find out who my sire's sire is and who's who, you know, go, go all the way back as far as I possibly can, um, because it it's kind of I mean to a certain degree I feel like uh, if you get introduced properly as a vampire that lineage should be kind of known to you and kind of prided Absolutely. to a certain degree. 
Um, because it's, I mean, if you really think about it, 13 generations back is, you know, if you're eighth generation, it's a lot easier. But I mean, even at 13, that's not that far away. Right. You're only, you're only memorizing 13 people. That's not that difficult. Right. You'd think that that would be something that would be taught to you, you know, down the line to a certain degree, depending on what's, you know, kind of going on. Um, I, I always I always imagine that the farther back you go, the more likely that you're going to have some kind of famous, quote unquote, you know, ancestor. <laughs> yeah, my co-storyteller and I, we sat down just a couple of years ago and plotted out all the blanks in the Toreador bloodline. So we know who we came from all the way from present. And whenever we have a chance, we try to introduce a new player to the bloodline as a character in the bloodline. So players embrace players every chance we get. You know, somebody might have a sire from 1996, from back when I was you know, 22 years old, who hasn't played the game in 10 to 15 years, actively part of their bloodline continuity, which is really cool. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So is this mainly tabletop or is this uh, um, mainly LARP? Well, it's all tabletop. You know, I've done my time in LARP communities. I was a domain storyteller for the Camarilla Org at the turn of the century. You know, I'm not going to slam anybody's good time, but I learned to steer away from LARPs. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, definitely. It's a different experience, for sure, from tabletop like, to LARP like is so much different. I mean, it looks so good on paper. It seems like such a good concept, but in execution, you know, I, the less I say about that, the better. That's a completely different podcast. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, so you do um, you know almost all of your stuff tabletop. How what uh, what's the player sizes that you kind of get up to? The very first time I I did this when I was nineteen and putting it all together, I took players from multiple campuses, uh, junior college campuses, and I ended up with about sixteen or seventeen tabletop players before LARPing. This was not a smart thing. This was a really really stupid thing for me to do. I kept it going for a few months, and I'm like, oh my god, I can't. So these days I just do like my optimum group size is two or three players all. And I'll go larger if I'm asked to, if there's really a press for it, but I usually don't like to go any any larger than four or five. But three is my optimal. Yeah, I found three is a very solid number for World of Darkness. Um, like four you is like a very solid group for Dungeons and Dragons, and I feel like uh, three is what World of Darkness was kind of, tabletop was really built around the concept of having three players. Um, and, you know, not having to have three, you know, I need a, a warrior, a paladin, and a, or, you know, a warrior, a thief, and a right. uh, you know, go you know, cleric or whatever. But you you can, you want to have personalities that are going to have fun times role-playing with each other. Um, so do you, so as a table topper, though, are you focused a lot on the mechanics? Or um, is your tables, um, your games, a lot of, like, role-play that you focus on? Oh, it's 95% role-play. I mean, at this point in my age, I'm losing rules from my mind. They're, they're slipping out with old age. I keep asking for roles that aren't on the character sheet anymore because they change the character sheets. So that gets embarrassing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they change it so much. Oh, there's no more technology. What? There's no subduction or subduction. But uh, I kind of wing it off the sheets these days and just go with the basics of the knowledge. And I focus mostly on the role-playing and the storyline overall, which is, I think, the storyteller's job is to focus on that more than the rules. The rules can serve and you should be consistent, but they're called storyteller games for a reason. It's not because you're playing chess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not. Uh, you, so you you do a lot more of the um, you know focus on politics and talking um, and you know introducing. Do you do a lot of combat scenes though, um, or is there is that something that you try to avoid um, primarily? Well, we focus mostly on RP and character relationships. With so politics, it's like a, a third place concern. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
action sequences and fight sequences almost never surface. They do, but you know, very, very rarely. So it's almost all RP and character. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely. And that's something that I, I mean, that's the strengths of the world of darkness. I feel like um, if you've gone through a game of the world of darkness and you haven't thrown a punch or done any uh, combat whatsoever, you know, it's, you, you likely had a really great game still. Um, whereas if you play Dungeons and Dragons, it feels like if you didn't kill a monster, I don't know, you know, what did you do? Well, why'd you show up? Yeah, why did you roll out of bed with this game today? Yeah, did I, I get any experience? <laughs> yeah, right. Do I get experience for eating a pizza? <laughs> but uh, I've had that problem with Werewolf because Werewolf is by design supposed to be more of an action game. And I really, it's counterintuitive to my instincts as a storyteller. So I'm still grappling Werewolf to a right place. Yeah, I feel like... I feel like werewolf can be like just a focus on combat, but I also, if you look at the rituals, the whole, like, I feel like politics is where werewolf is really at with a very weird take on politics, a very tribal, um, you know, there is combat, but I've, I've always been a, um, a person there's, I, I feel like there's some storytellers that are like with werewolf, all the challenges all need to be physical. It's all about, can this guy beat the crap out of this other person um, with a lot of um, the base challenges. But I always feel like there's, there's room for like, well, I'm not going to physically challenge you, but I want to challenge you in a game of wits or a game, a duel of, you know, who can catch, you know, this uh, uh, fawn or whatever that we're going to, you know, we're going to go hunt down or, right, right. um, you know, it's different kind of challenges that you could kind of do. But in the base in, in general, though, there's just all these different rituals. There's all these different kind of um, etiquette for how to do things and how things are done in the werewolf society, where if you're part of a car. Yeah. Yes. Yep. They've meticulously created this werewolf culture and all of its flaws. and It's heavily flawed. I'm going to tick off some werewolf players here. But some of the favorite games that I would like to do is show just how fucked up Garu society actually is. They're arrogant enough to think that they're perfect and they're ideal, but there's so many signs about how messed up they really are that I think a lot of people gloss over because, you know, werewolves first, go team, go team werewolves. I completely agree with you. Um, I've, I feel that werewolves are, um, they're monsters still, and they still, oh, yeah. and you should still have to deal with that aspect that you are a monster. It's, um, and that you have this this rage inside of you, this worm taint inside of you. And, you know, they try and, you know, kind of shove it off as being like, oh, you know, that was given to us by Gaia or whatever. But, I mean, that's still, like, there's a thing inside of a werewolf that is is dangerous um, to it's humanity really in general and can be it's like, like having the Hulk. That's being the Incredible Hulk, but four or five of you and you have claws. Right. Um, but yeah, there's uh, so much of, of as, uh, aspects of the werewolf society, especially I think the the aspects of the um, the combat, um, the the alphas are all you know strength based kind of stuff. Um, right. Is an is an aspect that I uh, that I retcon and change myself. But I think generally that that is the game, the concept that is one of their flaws as a werewolf society is that they are very short lived creatures that. Uh, value strength over wisdom and pride over everything else they're a very egocentric culture and that's basically what killed them you know werewolves didn't have to be defeated by the worm they've been defeating themselves for centuries and they just they're too arrogant to realize the flaws in their own parody absolutely yeah no they they uh completely 
disregard a lot of their flaws or or sweep that underneath the rug as quickly as possible. Yeah, and yeah, they should have been fighting the Weaver the whole time. Yeah, apparently. I mean, the same thing happened with Mage of the Ascension, how they were focused on the technocracy. And then over the last five to ten years, you know, even Purple Brucado, turns out the real enemy was in the Fandy all along. And, you know, it changed with the times. And the Fandy are really the big bad guys. No, I completely agree. That That's one of the big things um, that uh, I do with the Nefandi in any of my mage games is I always make it so that the Nefandi have, you know, they didn't get knocked out uh, because I believe there was like a whole thing in World War II or just after World War II that they kicked out all of the quote-unquote, you know, Nefandi from this realm and, and banished them. And I, I love the idea that, no, they just, yeah, that was just all the peons, all the people that were really Nefandi are a part of the technocracy, are part of the traditions. They're not an independent group. That's not how the Nefandi roll. They roll with corruption, you know? So, yeah, you might have some devil worshiping, you know, crazy Nefandi going around slaughtering people, but more than likely your boss is probably the Nefandi. You're probably a Nefandi, and you don't even fucking know it because... That's how the Nefandi roll, you know. They... Right, I mean, the, the typification is that Nefandi are going to be vastly powerful, vastly rich, you know, super wizards with, you know, an army of nobodies at their beck and call. What if it's actually just a zit-faced grocer at Walmart who's making $8 an hour, and in his night job, he's in a... They're ordinary and they're plain, and that's why they're hidden. Yeah, no, yeah, and it's, it's always about uh, the idea of you get if you get control of uh you know let's say you're part of a tradition you're part of a tra chantry and you're a nefandi and you corrupt the the leader of that chantry now pretty much everybody underneath him are at your control as well they just don't know that they're all agents of the nefandi now nefandi should be as subtle as you can possibly make them they shouldn't be theatrical they should be subtle they should be plain even the rich and powerful ones should actually have an ordinary aspect of them that makes them blend into the rest of the world. That's the threat. Yeah, yeah, and I think that uh, you know, if you do want to have a flashy Nefandi, that's that's the distraction. That's the red herring. Yeah. You know, that's the thing that is obvious. Obviously, that's the Nefandi we should go after uh, because something else is going to be going on while we are taking that down. That's kind of how I interpret that the Nefandi did it, is that they had those two sides. You know, they had the flashy Nefandi over here that was misdirecting everybody from these guys who were... And now everybody knows. Yeah, so do you have, like, the technocracy in your uh, vampire games? Um, I always find that interesting to see what, uh, what a vampire chronicle, how they handle the technocracy. Well, there was a big temptation when I was saying to chart out how all the sub-factions for all the splats are interacting in time, and that's just wasteful, honestly. I believe the technocracy is out there, but they're concerned with mages, and mages are concerned with the technocracy. Like, if I tell a mage game set in my timeline, it's going to have mage villains and characters and mage priorities. You won't see a Tremere wander over and throw a fireball. You won't see technocracy on their doors, unless there's a really, really, really good reason. So I kind of keep the sub-factions of a splat outside the main timeline vampire focus they're out there in my but they're not contributing anything directly to the octave story okay so and do you have like a, a main meta plot that you're kind of dealing out with um or is is it more kind of compartmentalized where you're having like uh each kind of thing kind of feeds in and they kind of all create one big story but there isn't uh overarching meta plot of you know the the big bad 
quote unquote. Well, we've largely we've largely kept the meta plot uh, in the background. Like we acknowledge that the meta plot events happen, and we feature them in our chronicles. But whether or not the players actually crisscross with them is still up for debate per character and per story art. Mm-hmm. So, like my core story tour and I sat down with Vampire Fifth Edition, reviewed the meta plot changes and the updates. We thought, okay, we like this. We want to keep this. We don't know what to do with this. And we just have that playing out in the background while the players are taking care of their business. So it gives them a, trans- a sense of still being part of the ongoing stories, it appears. And they sit down with other players and say, well, here's what we did with this event. You know, Here's what we were doing while this was happening. You can still have that kind of activity. Cool. So have you guys converted over to 5th edition all the way? Uh, no, my, my co-storyteller is a passionate V20 uh, vampire revised. I'm willing to give Vampire Fifth a shot. There's some stuff I really like about it, like lore sheets. I love lore sheets. But I have yet to run uh, Vampire Fifth Edition yet. I would like to just to say that I've done a latest as a Vampire Storyteller, but so far my table is filled with revised slash. Yeah, I like what they did with 20th Anniversary. Um, I feel like the rule update um, was really well done on quite a bit of, of stuff, kind of balancing things out a little bit more. Um, and... I always, yeah, I, I always wonder how how do you run Solarity? Um, because I I'm I always get kind of confused because I get um, I've always been one of the people that when I read Dark Ages, um, I really liked the idea that it's one blood point per action instead of one blood point in order to do if you have a Solarity of five, you get five actions for one blood point. Um, and I feel like twentieth anniversary kind of went in that direction but i f- i feel like i might be just misinterpreting that well i think uh, i don't think anybody contests that celerity is the most broken discipline of the game it's a powered gamer's wet dream you copy that with spoons and you're going to dice a werewolf so we've done with the one blood point per multiple actions thing just because it was rules per red i like the idea that if you're just kind of idling per se it just has a passive bonus to your dexterity rolls that's actually kind of a nice buff Mm-hmm. What I would really like to do is, I really like what Vampire 5th Edition did with Celerity and gave them actual power pit points. So that she's consistent with what Celerity should be. And if it were up to me, I'd uh, convert Celerity whole cloth into that. And the only reason I haven't done that is because I want the players to have a single book that has all the rules referenced that they need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rather than say, well, we're using all of this except for this section, which comes from this book and this section. So what, what does... Uh... Fifth edition kind of do with celerity. You said that it kind of breaks it up into more, just gives it different kind of powers that you get. You don't get extra actions every turn. No, the extra actions thing is pretty much gone as far as I can tell. It'd be like uh, you blink over to the other side of a room, the space of a heartbeat, you know, like Louis does. Your celerity is so fast that you can go across this telephone wire before you start to lose balance and fall over. It's stuff that's actually practical application for speed without it just being multiple actions. The fact that we took multiple actions away, I'm perfectly fine with that because it makes it much more balanced. You know, you can't add that onto a combat pool anymore in a practical way. There's something a dice. Yeah, no, that that definitely I think you know brings it back in. Uh, the way that I did it to limit it was um, I found or at one time I maybe I just misread that too, but um, at one point I had found something that said it's one blood point per turn. And I believe it was out of a Dark Ages book uh, for action. So it made it so I that, that too, yeah. I've if, seen that too somewhere. I don't remember. What. And I just I like that because it it doesn't doesn't cripple the discipline at all, um, but it definitely makes it a, a a big blood sucker if you want to be able to take you know ten actions. That's ten blood. 
That's a lot. Yeah. One of the reasons they probably did the way they did is to try and make it match up with werewolf and pull a chance werewolf inside. But if that's what they had to do to balance it, it was kind of a loss. Balanced everything else in vampire in time. Well, I feel like even like werewolves get the shaft on that because it, let's say if I have a celerity of five and the fight goes on for you know three turns, I get fifteen actions you know for three blood. They would have to spend you know what fifteen you know how many points of rage in order to even equal that is is well, quite a bit. Is, number one, everything pisses off a werewolf. If he fails to roll, <laughs> he gets a rage point. If he takes a win, he gets a rage point. He's angry. The floor is on the floor. He gets a rage point. That is I mean, true. Is, you know, werewolves hit so hard. You know, you add your successes to hit and all that. You know, that's uh, if you're still standing after the werewolf, you already deserve a prize. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that definitely uh, it does change things up. I mean, to a certain degree, when you're talking about that kind of level of power of uh, and and you are right that yeah, I think the big balance on that, truthfully, is yeah that they're um, they get rage all the time, whereas a vampire, he's got to actually suck blood. Yeah, he, he has to refuel at some point. If that werewolf is smart, he's going to dominate. So my money is still on the werewolf toe-to-toe fight. You can say a Bruja. You got a Fenris Arun? Yeah, we're not going to see that Bruja from a... Yeah. <laughs> but of course, if you're standing toe-to-toe with a werewolf anyway, you've already done it. You probably deserve to die. Just my point. Of view. Yeah, 100%. Uh, since you guys were quiet, I'll just bring up one thing that I wanted to ask about. Uh, I read in, okay. on one of your posts that uh, you don't like Malkavians. I've had such a headache about Malkavians ever since my earliest night. Because the fish milk ones were the only Malkavians I would ever see at the table. I mean, I like Malkavians. I like the potential of Malkavians, the horror and darkness of Malkavians. But nobody ever plays that. You know, or very, very rarely play that. They want to play, you know, Doc Brown from Back to the Future with a melee five and water spears. It's supposed to be their crazy game. It's also because I, uh, I've done a lot of security work in like mental facilities and old folks' homes. Actual mental illness is absolutely blood curdling. It is frightening to see what people actually say and do and how convinced they are that they're right. I mean, it shakes me to the bones about some of the people I've run across. They're just terrified. People think that Steve Martin with an arrow through his head, oh, meet some of these guys. That's the vampire horror that they were going for. The last thing you want to know is that this person's immortal with that kind of power to back up their delusion. And so it's kind of like they never really got Malkavians right in the write-ups, and it always kind of impacted how the characters were portrayed. So Malkavians quickly became my least favorite. Not because they had no potential, but because nobody wanted to realize it. Yeah, I I definitely see that a lot. Um, they're one of my favorite clans um, because I do f- like I, I like the prophetic um, aspect of them. I um I, I like the prophetic ones. Yeah, I, I like yeah the the idea of what they were in the dark ages is much more appealing to me than the modern day. Oh, they're just somebody out of the loony bin, and there's no structure to these this clan whatsoever. Um, you know, but once you start digging into them, you see that there is a bunch of structure. There is stuff that's going on. There is the the melt, you know, the madness network um, at play to a certain degree. Um, and I I always liked the idea that they were, you know, a lot of uh, 
at least the ones that I played were all about prophecies. You know, it was all about, you know, investigating into the occult and knowing about all this crazy shit that's going on. So your madness is, you know, because you are mad, but it might be because you see truth. And I think that's where they're taking Malkavians these days. Like fifth edition Malkavians are more about uh, being crushed by hyper awareness than having conventional mental illnesses, if I read that correctly. So you still get the same basic effect that they're creepy and they're out there, but you don't have as much incentive to play them, which I think is a big step up. Yeah, I like that. That's a good. That's a good change. I really need to take a look into fifth edition. It's been it's been a big glaring glaring hole in my knowledge um, since it came out, and it's something that I need to sit down and just read that book um, and see. Some There's some really good stuff I've I've been hearing about it. There's some things in it that kind of make you scratch your head, like they reduce the number of disciplines that exist and put several disciplines under a single house. Uh, for example, back in the old days, a lot of us conjectured that uh, dominate implementation were basically the same discipline, but they've done that with a lot of disciplines. Protean is now vicissitude and wonder instead of just a standard pro. Timber three is actually a separate discipline, obfuscated thing tree. And it's almost like they're getting carried away with that. It's like I don't even know where Serpentis is anymore. But uh, hmm. they're doing a lot of collapsing disciplines into themselves, stuff that seems redundant or just like different branches of the tree from a single school of philosophy. Mm-hmm. That's and interesting. Makes sense. I I can see where they're coming from. Um, it just it, it, I feel like it just yeah, it, it, it sounds I mean, like a mess wing, messing with the base game concepts, you know, of like mm-hmm. what a what a yeah. plan was that that they had this discipline that made them special or whatever. I mean, it is logical that vicissitude and protean could be connected. I'll, I'll give them that. That's that sensible. Dominate and dementation. Yeah, okay, I could see that. But it still scrubs, scratches you the wrong way because you get used to these clans having specific disciplines mm-hmm. that are their trademark disciplines. You, know, you didn't need them. I also, I, I kind of don't like the idea of vicissitude and protean being similar just because I use a lot of the extra stuff that they throw on to vicissitude to make it a very, you know, depends on like what books that you've read. But um, I personally, and I, you know, maybe I'll get a lot of hate for this, but uh, I, I love the dirty secrets of the black hand. Um, well, that was a controversial one. Yeah. I <laughs> very, <laughs> very controversial book. Uh, a lot but... of discussions about that book. Yeah. Um, but I love some of the ideas that they had it in one of them, you know, that a lot of people did not like was that, you know, vicissitude was an alien disease. And yeah, I remember that one. And I didn't know what to make of that either. So I just didn't feature it. But yeah, I know, I know the controversy you're talking. But yeah, so I, I always found that to be very interesting. Um, aspects of, of vicissitude you know because even in the sabbat book they you know they kind of took that out but they made it more of they still made it a disease in the sabbat book um you know but just kind of took out the, the alien stuff yeah which i'm fine with because I, I did kind of think that was going a little too far overboard for my part i'm okay with other people enjoying it but for my game not what i was yeah it's always about what what you want and that's and they i mean the dirty secrets of the black hand have basically been kind of retconned as being not correct in in a lot of ways that's good old classic uh white wolf for you back in the 90s right <laughs> sometimes they made a big wrong turn but uh, they did it with style right they always try and uh they always tried to make a splash no matter what they were doing yeah, they had a full head of steam back then and had brass balls, and they were kind of swaggering about it. But they did kind of earn it. I mean, they were so big back then. You know, everybody who wasn't playing D&D was playing Vampire or the White Wolf game. So they kind of earned 
bragging rights to a point. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I remember hearing a story about how uh, one time um, it was Wizards of the Coast, I think. Um, or no, it was not Wizards of the Coast. It was uh, TSR at the time came up to White Wolf at one of their booths and was like, you don't deserve to be here type stuff. Like you're you're beneath us and we just wanted you to know that kind of thing. And and they kind of came out and kind of revolutionized, you know, a lot of aspects of tabletop and LARP that uh, TSR was never going to be able to get into. Yeah, White Wolf broke a lot of ground and a lot of it. It was just the strange thing because you know, I grew up as a gamer with D&D in the 80s, and I was the geek that was picked on, and his books were thrown to the ground and all that stuff, because I was a D&D geek. And then I became the vampire guy in college, and I was getting dates all over the place. I had an entourage of friends that were following me from class to class. You know, I had a full-blown social life, because I was a vampire storyteller. <laughs> I mean, you, couldn't get, you couldn't get more worlds apart than that, and how that turned out. It made you a rock star to be a vampire storyteller back then, versus the other guy in the corner with his D&D set, who was still kind of lonely at lunch. Yeah, and I think kind of had collectively our revenge on that. Yeah, and I think that that one of the big things about that is that uh, Vampire is a very social game. You know, like you said, your most of your games are RPGing. You know, ninety five percent of the game, you know, if not more, is going to be role playing instead of mechanics based. Um, whereas if you're going to play Dungeons and Dragons, I've definitely gone through entire campaigns of you know years of playing with people where the role playing is maybe at about twenty percent, maybe right. you know uh, goofing off is about you know maybe that's actually eighty percent, and then there's like five percent role playing, fifteen percent mechanics. <laughs> my co-storyteller, uh, I'll say hello to Matt Gibbons and Natasha Gibbons. They're two of my players, and. Uh... Matt Gibbons likes to say that there's a difference between role-playing, R-O-L-L playing, and role-playing, R-O-L-E playing. And getting lost between the two is how you derail an entire chronicle. <laughs> and I agree with that completely. So it's a nice, you know, a nice bit of philosophy there, compartmentalized and well-presented. But I was envious I didn't think of it first. Brilliant. Brilliant. I like that. So I think we're coming up on almost an hour here. Um, there's uh just wanted to make sure is there any current things that you're you're working on that uh public uh that you're trying to get out there any books that you're kind of writing i know that uh you also did a book for a ghoul's tale if you want to kind of tell us a little bit about that um and if there's any other kind of storyteller projects uh or uh, storyteller vault projects or any other publications or ideas that you're kind of working on well i have a few books out under my actual name but uh, i'll focus on the vampire stuff with my pen name, Charles Ash. Uh, Ghoul's Tale is a short story that came about because I wanted to show people just how much it absolutely sucks to be a ghoul. Because we have people who make family members ghouls, who make their friends ghouls when they become vampires. They think that's going to save them from any kind of abuse or grief. It's like, no, no, no. If you're if you're a ghoul, you got one of the shortest straws in the world of darkness. God help you. And it's about a Toreador uh, who calls herself Lady Dusk on the conceit that a lot of vampires don't go by their real names anymore because that makes it too easy to track them down, figure out their age, figure out their age. So she has her alias being Lady Dusk, and she's a Toreador. She's a vicious Toreador. She's cold and she's methodical. And her ghoul is a guy who's absolutely obsessed with her because that's how ghouls work. And how she exploits him and breaks him down and eventually kind of brings him to a, a turning point in whether he has to... Uh, has to choose between her and trying to find a life of his own outside of the enslavement that he increasingly starts to recognize. 
it's the first in a series of uh, stories about that character. I was supposed to have the next one out by now, but we've all been dealing with COVID and emergency stuff. So I'm only just now warming back up to finishing work on the second story. Uh, I plan to uh, do an avatar book for Mage the Ascension, if I can pull that together and kind of uh, put in there my experiments and ideas about how to use an avatar as a more fully fleshed out character rather than just a background on a sheet. I did a one-on-one -on -one Mage the Ascension game that lasted for five years, you know, once or twice a week for five years. And we got really deep into his relationship with his avatar. And we compared notes back then about how we would improve the experience for other players if we were to recommend it. So if I have a chance to pull that together, I would like to. I'd probably stick to fiction on the Storyteller's Vault, do some Mage stories maybe. But uh, that's the stuff that's on my burner at the moment. Cool. Yeah, awesome. Um, do you have any shout-outs that you want to give out um, to any anybody or anything um... Before we wrap up here, I'd like to give a shout out to Kane for being such a memorable bastard of a dark father, first of all. Uh, Matt Gibbons, Natasha Gibbons, uh, Daniel Williams, and Kimmy, who is Natasha's sister, whose last name I don't know of. They're my present table, the secret keepers. Getting a big blast out to them. They rock. Good people. Uh, some of the finest gamers I've actually thrown dice with in a long time. I have to give them props for that. Uh, Aurora O'Brien, who is one of my best friends and a brilliant, brilliant artist, also breathtaking model. She did the cover of A Ghoul's Tale, and I like to pop her out there anytime I get a chance to kind of throw her out there, because she does such amazing commission artwork as well, and she's always looking for a good commission. Awesome, yeah, so we'll, my call outs. Um, yeah, we'll include uh, some of those links as well, uh, so that people can, can reach out and check those things out as well. It's uh, always good to, to promote and show that there's it's always good to know about good artists out there, to be honest. It's those... Absolutely. Very, very. And we also have the Grandmaster Timeline that I've been talking about through this entire publication. It's available on our Facebook site for our game group. And you can actually review it in detail to see what we've done for the last 27 years. It's available. Awesome. Yeah, I'll uh, provide definitely a link for that. And I kind of want to go through and, and check that all out. Um, so I have some time here for sure. Um, pretty intense. And you're uh, pretty active on social media uh, for us people out here in the World of Darkness community. Are there any pages or YouTube channels or anything out there that you think people should be following? That's a good question. I mean, I'm not really following that many for Vampire right now. I'd really like to get more into World of Darkness podcasts and to uh, actual plays. I can't say that at this moment I can think of anything to uh, advertise, which is my failing because I haven't been neck deep in the community for a while. But uh, I'm sure as I find them, I'll post them onto my game page, if nothing else, and give people a point in that direction. Like, I'll post you guys, make sure you guys get some coverage as well, obviously. Others from here, I hope. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show here. Um, I'm just going to give uh, some shout-outs here just to wrap some things up. Um, definitely um, want to shout-out to some of our brethren podcasts out there, like uh, Twin Cities by Night. Um, they got some really awesome actual plays, um, tons of library of uh, things for you to kind of go back and check out. Um, Midnight Express podcast, which uh, really got me into wanting to do bot podcasting after I was interviewed on one of his shows. Um, and we've got the Utility Muffin Labs. They have really great podcasts, both the World of Darkness and, and other kind of games. Um, and then World of Darkness um age or world of dark ages podcast is also really great if you want to check out about vampire the masquerade and and just the uh other dark ages lines that are out there 
Um, and then Mage the Podcast, if you want to learn all about uh, Mage the Ascension and tons of uh, good episodes to check out, uh, if, you know, all the way from different traditions to most of the books. I think they're almost all the way through on them. And uh, so I hope that uh, if you enjoyed our show, uh, definitely just uh, give us a like or a follow on, you know, whatever medium that you're seeing us on. We're on uh, Twitch. We have YouTube. We have Instagram, Twitter. Instagram is just a bunch of my cats. Um, so if you like cats, you can check out uh, Golden Age Stories Instagram. Um, uh, and don't forget to tune in to our Mage of the Ascension game, Technogate on Monday nights at 7 p.m. Central Time on Twitch at twitch.tv slash goldenagestories. And remember, that's Goldan spelled G-U-L-D-A-N. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to wrap that on up here. And thank you, thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on. My pleasure. Thank you much.